welcome to the Palmwood Podcast, part of the teaching ministry of Palmwood Church in Oviedo, Florida, where we love God extravagantly, love people with humility, and mentor others to do the same. Here's Pastor John with an introduction for this week's message. Thanks, David. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Palmwood Podcast. Did you know that there are people who don't believe Jesus was an historical figure? And still others who believe he lived but not in his miraculous death and resurrection. But there's plenty of extra-biblical evidence to prove Jesus' life as well as both his death and his resurrection. And while the historical evidence is important, it's even more critical to understand what his death on the cross accomplished for all those who will choose to believe in him. Today, we lay all that out, and we give the biblical foundation. I hope it bolsters your faith. Scripture reading today is taken from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, most people are familiar with this passage because it, it's read a lot at funerals <laughs> um, because it talks a lot about the resurrection of the dead. We're actually going to move back toward the beginning of chapter 15 where it talks about the death and resurrection of Christ, where Paul now talks to the Corinthian church about what Jesus has accomplished. This is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. Paul writes, For I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. First importance. Remember that that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then the Twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as as to one who is abnormally born. And Paul there is referring to his, um, the fact that he was actually not a believer at the beginning of the church, that he persecuted the church. And it was in the middle of one of his greatest drives of persecution that he met Jesus. And so he calls himself one who is abnormally born. You know, there's a lot of people down through history and in this world who would really love it if the, the Christian faith didn't talk so much about blood and death and crucifixion and capital punishment. You know, the cross was capital punishment. It was the, the equivalent of the electric chair of, in the day of Jesus. But I hope you understand today, by the time we're done with this message, that the death of Jesus, and in fact, um, the heinous death of Jesus, actually is something that is critical to the Christian faith. It's a, it's a non-negotiable to the Christian faith. 
Our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Our God is sovereign. He is in control. And in fact, our God used Satan's ultimate act of revenge against Christ to actually accomplish our complete redemption. As sinful humanity, driven by a satanic appetite against God, put Jesus to death on the cross, we actually followed through, we, humanity, on the very sacrifice that would set us free. God was never not in control. Think about this. The cross, as, as bloody and, and evil and heinous that death was, it's the most evil and at the same time the most beautiful thing in all of human history. Let's pray. Jesus, as with each of the doctrinal phrases that we are studying in this series based upon the Apostles' Creed, the death of Jesus is a non-negotiable. As I said last time we were together, I, I find it interesting that so many oppose the virgin birth because it is so critical to our faith. In the same way, Lord, the death and burial of Jesus is so important because it is central to our faith. And so, Lord, I, I would ask that today as we gather together and we look at your word, that, Holy Spirit, you would do something that perhaps with some people they've not experienced yet, that there would be a level of breakthrough on this topic, a level of understanding on this topic that they have not known, that they can see how foundational is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary to everything we are and everything we believe, everything we do on this mission to redeem the world under the rule and reign of Christ. And so, Father, help me to be clear in what I say. Help the technology, the, the webcast, and the video later to work as they should. May nothing distract, may nothing interrupt this critical message today. And we ask this in the name of our victorious risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, do you know that there are people that believe that Jesus' death is just a myth? That it's just a story? Do you know that there are people and have been people down through the ages who believe that um, Jesus himself was not a real person? They, they try to explain things away, uh, saying that, you know, it's all just a nice story, but it's, it's not real. That, that those of us, believers in Jesus Christ, that, that we're following after uh, the wind in, in this faith thing. And understanding that those kinds of attitudes were there, the, the folks that, that 
compiled what we call the Apostles' Creed, they put this phrase in there under the heading of I believe in Jesus, the, set, the second section of, of the Apostles' Creed. They said, I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. They felt it extremely important to put that phrase into our creed. And today we want to talk about that. To those who say the crucifixion never happened, to those who say that Jesus was not a real person, before we get into the Bible portion of our sermon today, I just very briefly, I want to look at history. I want to try and just, just very briefly help you understand that this is a real thing that really happened. And there's a lot of evidence for it. There's a man by the name of Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian. He's not a Christian. He has nothing to gain, uh, no interest in following Jesus at all. He was a Jew, but a historian who reports on the life, death, and the stories of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Around the same time, there was a Roman historian, Tacitus, who also reported on it. Now, Tacitus is, is not a Christian. In fact, he didn't think very highly of Christians. And yet, he gives the facts in his history about this man named Jesus. There's another Roman historian, Suetonius, who reports about it. And the Christian community, uh, his time of, of reporting is around the time of Emperor Nero, and so he's looking back a few years, but he still reports on the, the Christian community and their Savior, who they call their Savior, Jesus. The Roman governor, Pliny the Younger, refers to it as he writes about the Christian community and their executions, that they believe in this, this Jesus whom they called a God. Lots of extra-biblical, non-biblical references to it. The Gospels themselves give incredible detail to it, and they've been confirmed down through the ages over and over. The letters of Paul that have been accepted by the church from near the beginning, the letters of Paul explain the detail and the doctrine underneath the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But perhaps for me, the most, uh, the most confirming thing for me personally is that the death, the burial, and even the resurrection of Christ are attested to by so many documented witnesses of that time. There's hundreds, literally hundreds of eyewitnesses that confirm the ministry of Jesus, that confirm the crucifixion of Jesus, that confirm the burial of Jesus, and, and that confirm that after he rose from the dead, they saw him with their own eyes. In fact, Paul tells us that there was one event where Jesus showed up in his resurrected body and showed himself to over 500 witnesses all at the same time. As the Apostle Paul is writing his letters, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular are writing their Gospels, even John later on, there are people living that can totally debunk what they have said if what they have said isn't true. But nobody did it. 
you see, because there were hundreds, perhaps a thousand people who with their very own eyes saw these things take place. And there's various and sundry other extra-biblical manuscript segments that attest to pieces of the story along the way. Friends, the life and death of Jesus is well documented. It is a historical fact. In fact, there are biblical scholars and non-Christian historians both that have said that there is just as much evidence, some actually say there is more evidence, for the life and ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as there is historical documentation for the life and activities of Julius Caesar. And nobody, nobody believes that Julius Caesar was a fictitious person. Jesus is real. And what he accomplished for us in his death is absolutely critical. Now having said all that, the rest of our time together today, I want to ask a simple question and then take time unpacking the answer. And the question is this. Okay, so if the death of Jesus is so important, why? What did it accomplish? Today, I hope in our time together, I am going to help you to examine this multifaceted gemstone of an answer about the death of Jesus. The first thing that we see the death of Jesus did was it was a substitute. And you'll see with each of these points today, if you have the notes, each of the points today, I've got lots of documentation from the scriptures for each one. The point is this. Jesus' death was a substitutionary death for us. Jesus, the Christ, died in our place. Jesus, who had no sin of his own, we've talked about that the last few weeks, he took our sin, those of us in this room and those that are are watching now, he took our sin upon himself. He died in our place. Theologian Elmer Towns notes that there are 21 different Bible passages that explicitly talk about how Christ died for us. What did Jesus' death accomplish? There was a substitution. You and I did not have to die for our sin and will not have to die for our sin because Jesus already did. Next, redemption. What does it mean to redeem something? The last time that I preached on this, I lost about two-thirds of my congregation. And those of you that are my age and older will laugh at this, but the, the illustration that I used for redemption was S&H Green Stamps. And I realized the moment it came out of my mouth that two-thirds of my congregation is too young to even know what S&H Green Stamps are. And so I'm not going there today. But what I'd like to do is we talk about redemption is to define it and then give you a biblical example that maybe will be a little more relevant for the crew. Redeeming something is to pay a price to regain something or to gain possession of something. The story 
of Ruth. One of the most beautiful stories in the scripture, one of the most beautiful love stories ever told. If you're not familiar with the story of Ruth, with the account of Ruth and Boaz from the Old Testament, it's a short book. you, You can sit down, you can read it in one quick setting, it won't take you very long, and it's beautiful. I highly recommend that you pull that out of the Old Testament maybe this afternoon and take a look at it. Very briefly, there is a woman named Naomi and her husband who who leave Israel and they they go to Moab and they're working there and they have two sons and and they raise their sons to adulthood in Moab and they those two sons take Moabite women as their wives and then tragedy happens Naomi's husband dies and her two sons die in that era when a woman was a widow and had no children oftentimes meant that she died of starvation because there was no provision for them. One of those daughters-in-law left to go be with her family, but the second one, Ruth, not even an Israelite or Moabitess, saw her responsibility for her mother-in-law, and the two of them together went back to Israel to look for what is called a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer in the life of Israel in that day was a close relative to the husband who would agree to marry either Naomi, who was now well on in years, so she probably, was not, she probably would not be married again, but Ruth was, who would marry and redeem them and would, would then take care of them and continue the family line through them. And the story continues on that Boaz was unmarried and he was a godly man and how he took on the responsibility for Ruth and Naomi, but then the love story that builds between Ruth and Boaz. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And here's the outcome down the line even, is that here you have Boaz, a, a Hebrew man, and Ruth, a dark-skinned Moabitess woman, who are married together, and they are, I think, the great-grandparents of King David, and therefore Ruth is in Jesus' family line. It's an incredible story. But what happens? Boaz gives his life, marries a Moabite woman to redeem the line of Naomi's husband. And the family line then turns to Jesus. Redemption. He effectively purchased something back, purchased someone back, redeemed them and and allowed their life to continue. Jesus' death is a redeeming death for us. Jesus' death paid the ransom price for you and for me and for all humanity, for our souls. If we are in Christ, if we have surrendered to Jesus, we are redeemed. The Apostle Paul says to you and I down through the ages that we were purchased with a very high price the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death was a redeeming death. Atonement. Jesus' death provided restoration. Jesus' death provided a restoring, a a making new of what was Destroyed. Now, we've talked about this word atonement before, but for those that may be new, 
Uh, let me just go back and, and say that, that atonement um, is it's, it's a word that is now found in the scriptures. There really is not a word um, literally atonement in the Bible. There's words that mean the atonement. But atonement is actually an old English word. And the reason I point that out is because of what it means. Atonement in old English meant at one meant. At one meant. Taking something that is shattered and scattered and bringing it all back together and making it new and whole and the way it was designed to be. That's atonement. And that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus' death was, a, was an atoning death. Jesus' death was a restoring death for us. Jesus' death was a death of satisfaction. You go, well, that's a funny word. Well, not really when you think about it. Our God is a righteous God. He cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. God's law for us is righteous. So when there is sin, the law requires a penalty for that sin. Sin must be punished. The penalty for sin cannot be ignored or God is not just. The penalty for sin cannot be ignored or God is not righteous. You follow? Now, God also is love. We're told that. It's not that he's loving. He is himself the essence and source of all love. This is also absolutely true. And it's the reason that Jesus was given. Think about that famous verse we referred to a couple times already in this series, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his one and only son. God is love. But God being love does not negate God's justice. God being love does not change the fact that he is righteous. And so something has to happen that deals with the righteousness and justice of God that does not at the same time change the fact that he is love. And that's where Jesus comes in. In John chapter 10, the passage about the good shepherd, Jesus says something very profound. He says, nobody takes my life from me. Now just stop and think about that for a moment. They put him to death. Humanity is responsible for the death of Jesus. It was Roman soldiers that pushed those nails through his wrists and his feet. It was the Jewish ruling council that condemned him to be crucified. Humanity is responsible. And yet, Jesus says, No, I accepted this of my own accord. Jesus was never out of control of his own life. He says, I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. Jesus' life was given by Jesus himself voluntarily so that God's love for the crown of his creation, humanity, and his justice for humanity's sin could both be satisfied at the same time. It's the only way it could happen was for God 
to take the penalty in our place. And that's precisely what happened. Jesus' death satisfied the righteousness of God. Jesus' death satisfied the righteous requirements of God's law. Jesus' death was a death of satisfaction. Jesus' death was a death of reconciliation. Jesus' death made our forgiveness possible. From the time of Genesis chapter 3, humanity is at odds with God. And the story of the Old Testament is God trying through patriarchs, through judges, through prophets and kings, through various instruments down through history to restore humanity to himself. But humanity kept rejecting God's offers for restoration. Humanity kept rejecting the messages of the prophets. Humanity kept rejecting the the covenants and breaking the covenants that God would make with humanity. Over and over, God renewed the covenant that he made with mankind. And over and over, mankind broke the covenant. Until the cross of Calvary. You see... It's in the death of Jesus that our relationship with our God is finally, finally reconciled. It's because of the shed blood of Jesus. We're forgiven because of Jesus' death. Jesus' death is a death of judgment. A judgment both on sin and also on Satan. With respect to judging sin, the old man, the old nature, the sinful part of us that, that cannot, uh, uh, that, that could not uh, uh, abide with God is crucified with Christ, is what the scripture says. We have been crucified with Christ and, and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Therefore, we are no longer slaves to our sinfulness. We no longer need to fear God's condemnation because it has already been levied upon our sin in Jesus Christ. Remember First or 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, what we called a few weeks ago the great exchange that takes place. Judgment is on our sin, but our sin is on Jesus, not on us. And so the words of Paul are true in Romans 1 verse 8. Therefore there is, listen to this, there is no condemnation, no condemnation from God upon those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Because it's already been levied. There's a radio talk show host here in the Orlando area. Uh, those that are local have, have probably heard him on the, the local Christian station. Uh, he also is uh, um, a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary just down the street from where we're meeting right now. His name is Steve Brown, and, and he's made this statement famous, but it's true. God's not mad at you. Because God took out his wrath on Jesus. It's also a judgment on Satan. The father's prophecy way back in Genesis 
chapter 3 about the judgment on the serpent is true because at the cross of Calvary, Jesus finally crushed Satan's head. Jesus has triumphed. His death is the very tool that God has used to disarm the powers and authorities of evil. You and I are free. I would turn you to Colossians chapter 2. This is, this is such good news. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Listen, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Satan and all of his henchmen, if you will, he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. The cross is the judgment, the final and ultimate judgment of Satan made real. Finally, Jesus' death is a death of cleansing. Oh, if there is good news for those who believe in Jesus Christ, if there is good news for those who have surrendered their lives to him as king and as master, it's this. There is daily cleansing from sin. If all these other things we have said are true, then we can also rest assured that God has made a way to remain sin-free for us. Because you see, Jesus did not just pay the penalty of death in the backward direction of the past. Jesus also paid the penalty of, of sin in the forward direction of our future. Jesus has made the promise of 1 John 1, 9 and 10 possible. If you are in Christ, friends, there is a promise made to you and to me. John the Apostle, whom Jesus loved, as he writes his first letter to the church, says, If we confess our sins, he, that is Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we have said yes to Jesus, if we have surrendered to him as Lord and as Savior, we are made clean of everything that is in our past. And then this promise is firmly planted in our future. That every time we mess up, and we will, and he knew it, that's why he gave us the promise. Every time we mess up, when we confess, it's a brand new start every single time. We are not just redeemed of the sins we confess, but John tells us God goes all the way and cleanses us again from all unrighteousness. Jesus' death is a death of continuous cleansing for us. I believe in Jesus Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Jesus was a real person with a real history. The crucifixion really happened, and there is ample evidence to confirm that he died on the cross at Calvary. And because Jesus, the very Son of God, we've talked about that in weeks past, what that means, the Son of God, died on the cross at Calvary, these things are true. Listen, let me enumerate them for you real quickly once again. He substituted for us, standing in our place for the punishment of sin. He redeemed us 
paying the necessary ransom for us to be bought back by our Heavenly Father. He atoned for us, restoring all that was destroyed by sin. He satisfied the righteous requirements of God and God's law, so we are declared righteous. He reconciled us, making full forgiveness possible and opening up the way for us to have an eternal covenant relationship with God from the moment we say yes forward. He judged both our sin and Satan himself. The final blow to Satan and disarming all spiritual powers arrayed against God and his people. He provides continuous cleansing for us. For those who surrender to him as master and savior. Offering forgiveness for every wayward, wayward thought. Every wayward word. Every wayward deed. After our initial, initial salvation so that we are never condemned again. Oh, friends, would you agree with me that Jesus' death and burial are important to our faith? They're critical. Thanks for joining us for the Palmwood Podcast. If you'd like more information about Palmwood Church and its ministry, see our website at palmwoodchurch.com. Have a blessed day.